Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Over the course of this series, I have told a lot of stories about my home on Lummi Island. And some of them are stories about problems, like the ferry going out, or the fact that there's not a gas station on the island. Or what do you do when the car ferry goes to get service for three weeks every year? Maybe you found those stories a little unusual. The point is, I'm no stranger to living in a place that is relatively remote. But there's Washington State remote, and then there's Arctic Circle remote. There are very few places in the Arctic Circle that are livable. And yet, there are some small towns up there, like very small towns. Village is a better descriptor. And they have unique challenges, like the fact that the only way in and out, unless you are a very, very skilled driver, is by air. Or the fact that there are actual polar bears walking through your neighborhood. So just imagine going to the grocery store. It's nine degrees below zero out, I mean, I don't even have to be there. I can hear the cold, the wind, the crunch of the snow under her boots, the doors opening, the warmth of the store, the people. You can hear Samoan and Tagalog in the background. It's welcoming, but the prices, not so much. Ooh, there's fruit. That voice, that's today's guest, Kavahine Danner. She's shopping at a supermarket in Utkiavik. They look like they're going a little bad. Utkivik is up there. It's the northernmost town in the United States. And because of that, stuff is pricey. That one looks good, though. So it's $19.10 for a fruit bowl. She ended up spending $273. And that is just for a few days' worth of food. But that's just life in the Arctic Circle. This is Town Sizing, a podcast from HGTV all about small-town living. And I'm your host, Anne Helen Peterson. Kavahine is a Nupiak, which is one of the main tribes in Utkiavik, Alaska. Some people might recognize its previous name, Barrow, but in 2016, the village decided to restore its native name. It's small, with just about 4,000 people, and many are from families like Kavahine's that have been there for centuries. Others have come to work in the oil industry. 
Like a lot of small towns, you don't end up in Utkiavik by accident. It's a place with very little greenery, and for people who don't live there or who haven't grown up there, it might be generalized as a whole lot of nothing. But not to Kavihine. My name is Michelle Joy Kavihine Kilomana Natuk Uhurok Danner, and I was born and raised here in Utkarovik, Alaska. I have a really long name. <laughs> Who says that names should be short or long? I mean, a name length is arbitrary. Yeah, so everyone calls me Kava, which is Kava. like a short nickname of one of my middle names. My mom, she's Inupiaq, mm-hmm. which is an Alaska Native tribe here in Alaska. And that's where we're based. And my dad, he's Hawaiian, but he came up here because his parents were educators. So in other parts of the United States, it has only recently started to be cold or like dark. So what's it like outside right now? It's really cold right now. It's really windy. (laughs) Um, We are entering into December, which will be super duper cold. We'll hit the negatives pretty soon. For a lot of people up here, it's not that cold. A lot of people, when they travel for vacation, they'll schedule it November, December, because in other places, it's not very hot, which is (laughs) perfect for everyone coming out of Utkarovik. I mean, my friend came to visit from Anchorage in August, came to Seattle, and it wasn't that hot. It was like maybe in the high 70s, and she's like, this is too hot for me. People don't understand, too, that we are very used to the climate. Mm -hmm. We've had about 10,000 years to adjust. (laughs) But we are very used to the cold and we like the cold. What does the town look like? It is mostly residential homes. We have a few stores. We have a very nice hospital here and a few playgrounds. We don't have trees. We don't have very much greenery. There's a lot of family. There's a lot of friends. It's very vast. So when we go hunting or go out on the nuna, which means tundra, it's very, very vast and there's a lot of wildlife. So it's beautiful to us. It might be very different to someone who's just visiting, though, and who's used to seeing trees or greenery or things of that nature. There's so many different definitions and understandings of beautiful. And if you grew up with it, like, of course it's beautiful. Yeah, and we are Taoyoromute which means we're sea coastal people. And so in the summertime, most of the time spent is on the water. Whether it's kayaking or seal hunting, we just spend a lot of time in the ocean, even though it's freezing cold. We have a really deep connection to the ocean, and it's beautiful. Everyone knows, like, Alaska, there's a lot of wildlife, right? Like, they just kind of know this. Don't but... ask me if I ride polar bears. <laughs> yeah, I'm not <laughs> going to ask you about riding them, but what about the existence of polar bears? They are very present here on the North Slope. We have signs everywhere for our wonderful newcomers in town that they need to be on the lookout. In wow. other villages, they are more present. They are not afraid to get into the dumpsters. Here in Utkarovik, we are no exception. They will come down the street, mostly on the other side of town. It's like a two-minute drive, (laughs) 10-minute walk. And what is unfortunate about climate change is it changes the relationship we have with polar bears, meaning they are scavenging more. And so from what I heard from my grandparents is they act very differently than they did 
back when they were younger, they're not afraid of people because they need to eat. So I think that's what is so unfortunate about climate change is it pushes not only danger, but stress on us. And I don't like it when people say, if you've had a relationship with the animals for thousands of years, why do you eat them? And that's <laughs> such a silly comment because mm-hmm. the biggest yep. threat to sea animals is not what we're doing as Inupiaq people. It's what we're doing as the so-called you know, Western society. Sometimes I do get frustrated with the mm-hmm. comments I get and I put out an art piece about the harm that Western society has done. I embrace those conversations with nothing that we're doing is harming these animals. It's only climate change. And it's only what people who don't live here are doing. I can just see how people could fire off an Instagram message. It's like, how dare you? And that's where it's like a lot of that is born from ignorance and just not knowing. Or sometimes actually it's even born from, I don't know, choosing not to see what's right in front of you. I just let them roll right under the bridge. (laughs) Keep on keeping on. (laughs) What was it like when you were growing up? Did you ever yearn to like go to the big city or did you really like where you were? We traveled a lot. And I think that's one of the big misconceptions when I talk about Calgary because people think we're here and we all stay here all the time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But like most people, I got homesick every time I traveled when Mm -hmm. I was a kid. Being in such a small place is kind of like the equivalent of being in like a homemade hut. I don't know if you ever made huts when you were younger. Mm -hmm. Very comfortable, feels very safe. That's the feeling I describe to people. Even when I travel now, if I'm two days in a big city, maybe it's in part that there's a lot of stimulation because Mm -hmm. it's a bigger city, but I always miss being home, like right here in my house and in this small town because it feels very safe and it's very comforting. It's like a gravity, right? Like it wants to draw you back in and you can feel when you're far from it. Yeah, exactly. For example, I'm working on a tattoo of someone who worked here for a few years and needs to tattoo himself (laughs) permanently to stay connected to Utkavik. It's that homey feeling that I think is so relevant for small places. And so for Utkavik, same effect. Like you just have a connection to this place, even though it was small, even though there's not that many people. I mean, I already get that sense from people from Alaska. You know, like the only other place where I've felt as much like intense state loyalty is actually Montana. Yeah, it's a really unique place to live. It's obviously, we're in the Arctic, not a lot of places that are habitable in the Arctic. But I remember when I was growing up, our native corporation would give the opportunity for kids to go out of state, to look at colleges, interact with other students. And I went to Washington, D.C., Baltimore. A lot of the kids didn't know Alaska was a state. (laughs) And maybe it's (laughs) because we were in fifth grade. So it would always confuse me. I would call my dad and be like, people are asking me if I'm foreign. And then my dad, I remember him saying, what are they teaching you over there? I was like, no, 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 it's the kids, not the teachers. <laughs> well, and just that assumption that if you live in a rural place that, I don't know, that you don't go on planes, right? 
you're like, no, everyone takes the plane a lot. It's the only way to get in and out. (laughs) So we're... (laughs) This is what people don't understand, right? Like in summer, there are like, you can take some roads, right? But maybe doesn't connect all the way. It connects all the way, but you have to be a very talented driver. It is not a road. (laughs) There are little hills that you have to drive over. So (laughs) yes, most of my family and friends are Alaska Airlines MVP members because if we want to go on vacation, that's our only option. There's no other airlines. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You moved to Hawaii in high school. So in Hawaii, they have what's called the Hawaiian homesteads. So when you're a young native Hawaiian... You can participate in getting your land. And my dad was on that list waiting for his land for 35 years. Wow. And then they called and said, after 35 years, you can acquire what you were entitled to, which is a piece of land. And so that's how we ended up making the move to Hawaii based on that long wait for what we were owed. So that's why we moved, because we had an opportunity Were we ever thinking about moving to Hawaii? Probably not. But when they say, you know, your family has been waiting 35 years, you have this land, you must move to claim it, we moved. Yeah. (laughs) And eventually I adjusted really well. And I think that's because we moved to the homestead where we already had family. Like I already had Native Hawaiian aunties that 
kind of helped me adjust. That's a thing, too. We don't get a lot of sun. The Arctic, obviously. So I was, like, (laughs) so pale. Even though we're Native and we're tribal people, we're very, very pale tribal people because we don't get any sun. So the first day I got there, they looked at me and thought, you're haole, which is a term in Hawaii for white. Yeah. And the first thing I said, no, I'm not. I'm like, I'm native. And they're like, no, you're not. And I'm like, yes, I am, actually, because my skin was very, very light. No sunlight for 12 years. And then I go to a really, really sunny place. But it became easy. My mom, who only knew Utkalavi for her entire life, moved. Mm. And she was a trooper (laughs) for as long as she could be. (laughs) Obviously, we're back in Utkalavi because she missed home so much. Yeah. But yeah, she was great. And she moved for our family. She moved for us so that we might be able to secure what we were owed as a family. What year did you move back to Alaska? I moved back in 2015, so I had just graduated high school, like Mm. five days, and I got an internship at the mayor's office. I was really stoked about that. And so my mom called her brother, Quincy, and said, I know I haven't talked to you in a long time, but I'm sending my daughter there. Whether you like it or not, I'm pretty sure that's, I don't know what the conversation was, but that's what happened. Mm -hmm. And I moved in with my uncle, who... His family is very culturally involved. They're a mm-hmm. whaling family. One of the last tribes that can participate in traditional whaling. And so I moved in with him and his family for the summer. And that's when I decided to stay because yeah. I had such a great experience moving back home. Do you participate in whaling now? Whaling is a dangerous activity. The process of learning that starts at a very young age with the Mm -hmm. weaponry. And of course, you know, in the 70s, 80s, young, knowledgeable men were teaching young men. And so that way of learning, it started a long time ago, but that process of learning comes from the 60s, 70s, 80s. Now you'll find that there's more young ladies that are hunters, whalers, the whaling crew I'm a part of, female whaling captain. So it's... really. Yeah, so we're changing. It takes time, though. It takes time because, again, it's a dangerous activity when you go out and hunt these whales. It's very different than in America. We have the meat industry where Mm -hmm. conveniently animals can be raised for butchering. But what we participate in is subsistence, which is, you know, not only allowing the animal to live freely in, in a wild state, but then taking those chances to acquire that animal. And it's a wild Mm -hmm. animal. So again, the knowledge it takes starts from when you're very, very, very young. And because I moved to Hawaii when I was 12, I missed a lot. So for me, and you'll hear this from other Native people who are reconnecting with culture, there's a lot we just can't do, not because we don't want to, but because... There's a teaching process that I've missed. Like, for example, if you miss third, fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. Do long division yeah, right now. <laughs> you can't learn seventh grade without going back and learning yep. the basics. Yep. So my time in whaling is serving tea with the kids, serving mm-hmm. coffee, and just doing whatever I'm told with the kids. And yep. I don't mind that at all. Yeah. 
Can you explain subsistence hunting, like the posture towards acquiring food? Because I think sometimes people hear the word, but they don't really understand what it means. I know that there's a lot of conversations about whether or not that's ethical, whether or not Mm -hmm. hunting seals and whales is ethical. They don't take into consideration why we do it. A part of my life, I grew up in Hawaii, where it's a very vegan state. So every time I tried to talk about why we hunt for food, it's shut down. You know, we do it to not only to survive, but to exercise our rights. Sometimes it is, I would rather eat traditionally made seal oil than ketchup. And it's also like enshrined in treaties too. That right is enshrined. It's not something that's debatable. Yes. So now that we have those rights restored, you'd think people would say, you know what? That's a great idea. (laughs) You should be able to eat what you traditionally eat. So again, for subsistence people, it's only about feeding ourselves Mm -hmm. and feeding our elders. If we entertain those conversations of that's not ethical, that's not the way we do things here in America, we would not even have the time to get to the feeding part. So we (laughs) focus a lot on the safety, the tradition, the hunting, and we just execute it because that's who we are and that's what we do. Because of the distance, because things have to be flown in. Like, What are some things that are harder for you to get that people might not? Everything. So in Utkalavik, there are eight villages on the North Slope. Utkalavik Mm -hmm. is the largest. There are some villages that only have one store. And for Utkalavik, we're lucky enough to have post office. They have the manpower to process bigger boxes. So Mm -hmm. some things on Amazon we can get. A lot of the times, though, the companies, they catch on. And they see that they're paying 60 bucks for this $12 item and then they cancel (laughs) it. (laughs) So we do not have a Walmart, a Michael's, fast food chain restaurants. We have four stores now and everything is very expensive because we're so isolated. So everything's flown in. So a grocery trip for the day, easily spending 300 to 500 bucks, maybe not even a week's worth of food. So you're an artist. Can you tell me about your business? Like, how would you describe your art? I would describe my art as being very honest and Mm. kind of like if my diary was made up of pictures because I have these phases of being kind of angry with the state and the treatment of Native people. And I use that to reflect in my art. And then other times I'm very gracious. I'm feeling very happy of where we're at not only politically, but economically, what I see. So my art becomes very hopeful. Mm. So I have a lot of really loyal followers, and that has been the key to my business. Because I'm definitely an artist who moves with whatever climate we're in. Mm. And that can be very difficult. When I told my parents, I'm going to be an artist, (laughs) every parent, when they hear that, they're like, it's a difficult industry to get into. So... From a very young age, I was very artsy and very quiet. So I did a lot of art. And then when I moved here, got my first job, I left the nest and realized, wow, I really need money to live. (laughs) My aunt asked, can I buy that? It was something I drew. And I was like, you want Mm. to buy this? (laughs) 
She's like, yeah, I want to buy it so I can hang it up in my home. So I sold it to her and I thought, oh my gosh, I have so many drawings and paintings and ideas in my tote. I started my business when the pandemic started. I organized Mm -hmm. my ideas and my thoughts and just started selling my art. And it totally took off, which I was very grateful for. I already had Instagram Mm. and I saw other indigenous artists selling their moccasins and their beaded earrings. And I thought, okay, I can do that. And so I started making earrings and finalizing a lot of pieces that I had already previously painted Mm -hmm. and started from there. So the more interest I got really pushed me to make a website because I thought, this is crazy. I have 40 messages from 40 different people and I'm handwriting my shipping labels. Some indigenous artists, they live 100% on their designs and they offered advice. They sent me supplies. It was really cool. But, you know, social media makes it so much more possible for you to have this business where your art is available to people all over the world. You can do a whole business from your phone now. You're marketing. So, okay, I think that there's an understanding now that if you're not Native, you should not buy Native-inspired things from, like, urban outfitters that are, like, clearly ripoffs of actual Native artists, right? I know exactly what you're talking about. You'd be surprised about people who are not Native Straight up just taking designs and putting them for sale. (laughs) 100%. I have definitely had some moments where I was very frustrated with non-Native people doing that. And what I accepted probably like only a year ago (laughs) was I can't do anything about it other than push out authentic designs, uplift Native artists. You can't stop someone from doing something. They'll do it. But you can change what you do to kind of combat that. And so all the time I'm sharing, resharing other Native artists who part of their tribe and uh, uplift their art. That's what we do for each other. Native art is its own community. And so the more in agreement we are, the stronger we are. Well, and then having so many artists, too, because I think sometimes people are like, they think that all Native artists are like creating the same design, like there's one Native design, right? But there's so many unique ways and having so many more artists just underlines that there isn't one Native art, right? Yeah, there's hundreds of tribes. I think people also forget that, too. And what is really difficult about that is knowing as an artist where my lines are, if that makes sense. Because I've gotten requests from people to do, hi, can you please draw up this really sacred whaling flag from your community? Because I helped them on one day. And at those moments, I take a step back and I say, absolutely not, I will not do that. (laughs) Right. But also take the time to inform them why it's not appropriate. So, you know, that's why it's important to support Native artists, whether it's something for your home or something you wear. It really ties into our existence in our society. Anything. As Native people, we have been carving, we have been earring making for thousands of years, art in archaeological sites. It's something so embedded in us. We just want to be able to do that and feed ourselves yeah. how other people can. What is one of your absolute favorite things about your town? One of my favorite things about my town are the youth. In today's climate, 
there's some assumptions about Gen Z. They're not proud of where mm. they come from. They're not proud of where they live. They're not proud of this or that. What I really admire is that the youth here are really proud to be from Utkalhavik. And I think yeah. that says a lot about our yeah. town, our people, and the way we do things here. Because if you have that many kids being proud of where they come from, it just says a lot about how we operate here. Next week, we'll be speaking with Bobby Finger, who you might know as the co-host of the truly amazing podcast, Who Weekly. He's also the author of The Old Place, and he's going to tell us about growing up in a very small town in Texas. Plus, what's it like to grow up in a small town now? We'll talk to Lily, a teen from Pittsburgh, North Carolina, whose family has lived in the same tiny town for generations. Townsizing is produced by Neon Hum Media for HGTV. You can follow our show wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, we'd love it if you could take a second to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. I'm Anne Helen Peterson, and if you see me online or in real life, be sure to give me that small town wave. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.